We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're asking built environment professionals, how can new green technology be incorporated into our buildings? Our guest in this episode is alternate energy specialist, Jackie Mills. Jackie is an energy engineer and head of new energy at Clipsal Solar. Before working at Clipsal, Jackie was the virtual power plant lead at the Australian Energy Market Operator, the organisation that manages electricity and gas systems and markets across Australia. In this interview, Jackie shares how adding solar to people's homes affects the grid, how large and small-scale batteries are being integrated into the overall energy system, and how important energy efficiency is to a home before solar and batteries are added. Let's jump in. Jackie, thank you so much for joining me today on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going? Very well, thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So at the moment, you're working for Clipsal. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background before you started working there and what you're focusing on right now? Yeah, absolutely. So I work for Clipsal Solar, which is sort of related to Clipsal, the very popular 100-year-old brand here in Australia, and we've definitely capitalized on that. Mm -hmm. So at Clipsal Solar, we focus on installing solar and batteries for the residential sector. But what makes us special and unique is that we have a home energy management system for our clients. So we have an ongoing relationship beyond that point of install. And because we've got a really rich data source, we're then really interested to see where that can go in the future. And I might touch on that later in the podcast as a bit of a teaser. Yeah, cool. So prior to joining Clipsal Solar, I was at AMO, which is the Australian Energy Market Operator. AMO operates the entire power system. So what I mean by that is between Queensland down to Tassie, South Australia is all electrically connected through one power system. Mm-hmm. And AMO actually also operates the, the Western, Western Australian power system as well. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So I don't know how, if everyone knows that, yeah, the whole grid across the entire country is connected. Does that mean that some of the power that's being generated in Queensland is ending up in South Australia? Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. So as soon as an electron is generated, you really can't distinguish one from the other. There are a couple of properties to the power system that are really vital to then operate the power system. So that's what the AMO control room looks at. Those two properties being frequency. Here in Australia, we try and keep it at 50 hertz Mm -hmm. and voltage. And so voltage, hopefully most people are familiar with. If you plug something into, you know, a board in your home, you'll have current and voltage, usually 240 volts in your home. And if you were nerdy enough like me, you'd know that the, fre- the frequency is 50 hertz as well. What makes frequency a particularly useful property is that it's actually maintained across the grid. So the frequency in Queensland is extremely similar, if not the same, as the frequency in South Australia, whereas voltage is a local property. So why that's important is that if we have a large power station or a large load, like an aluminium smelter, which happens Mm -hmm. from time to time, doesn't happen every day, but it happens from time to time, that we can see that either as a rise or 
a drop in frequency. So it's really a really neat way for AMO to manage the balance between supply and demand Mm -hmm. and then to act very quickly to kind of correct that when things go wrong. Right. So the power is able to be delivered basically when people need it. And even if there's like the demand goes right through the roof, then AMO can respond and the power that we need comes out of the plug basically. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And so to keep on top of that, that's done on a five-minute basis. Mm -hmm. There are services, six-second, 60-second, and five-minute services Mm -hmm. that help to keep that on track. They're sort of called contingency services, contingency Mm -hmm. being when things don't go so according to plan. Mm -hmm. Um, But really, on on a broad scale, that supply and demand balance is managed on a five-minute basis, and it's reflected in a price. So here in Australia, I'm not going to go into too many of the details because that's almost a podcast by itself, <laughs> but the price can go very negative. So negative $1,000 per megawatt hour and up to over $15,000 per megawatt hour. So right. I know that as a household, we deal in cents per kilowatt hour. Mm-hmm. So those figures might seem sort of a bit hard to imagine, but I guess what's what the takeaway is that if price goes negative, it's a reflection that there's actually there's actually too much power in the system that we actually need more demand. Mm, Okay. So it's a way to say to the generators, can you catch you later for a bit? Like you just need to tone down. We've got too much, too much generation in the system. If price goes very positive, it's up Mm. to $15,000, which is extreme. That doesn't happen every day. It happens a few times a year. And when they're really serious events, price might hang around that top point, Mm. that ceiling price, but it's, those are more rare events. And it's really to say that we don't have enough generation with mm-hmm. too much demand. And so these typical scenario is it's a really hot day, 40 degrees, you know, in Western Sydney, which then is a reflection of it being pretty hot the rest of the country as well. And it's really to say, look, we either need to consider reducing some of that demand by having, you know, home energy management systems, which is what I spoke to before about Clips or Solar introducing, mm-hmm. or having bigger demand project uh, programs in the power system or having devices like batteries or gas-fired power stations to turn on very quickly to meet that demand. Right. Okay. So I guess, yeah, that's, that's a huge, that's got to have a big impact for, you know, your specialization area with, with solar. Yeah. What's, what's happening in the grid then when more and more houses seem to be getting solar arrays, which is fantastic. How does that affect the grid and the supply across the grid if we're getting so many more you know solar arrays on people's houses does that mean that then we're once again supplying too much energy to the grid and we need to calm it down a little bit it's a really really good question so you've touched on something that is you know really our energy transition here in australia and is reflected in parts around the world as well so here in australia we prize ourselves on having you know one of the highest levels of distributed energy resources mm-hmm. per household. So what I mean by that is solar on people's roofs and more and more so batteries in people's homes as well. And so what that means is it's actually making things trickier to operate the power system. So back in the day, when I say back in the day, let's even go like five years ago, like mm-hmm. it's not even that long ago, okay. that the traditional power system was made to operate in a one-way flow. And what I mean is large generators out in Whoop Whoop, out in the country, that generate a lot of power, say Latrobe Valley, for those in Victoria that may know Latrobe Valley, they're very high voltage power lines that then take it sort of close to the city, get stepped down, 
goes into closer and closer and it finally gets to you and me at home. And so that's, that's a one way of power mm. going from very high voltage in a centralized area out in the country to, you know, homes at the end of the day. What's happening though, to your point about more and more homes getting solar is that as we generate more solar in our homes and as solar prices reduce, it's really tempting and, and people are taking up and having bigger and bigger systems. So, you know, 10 years ago, there was sort of like an average, say like three kilowatt systems. Now we're seeing, you know, between five and 10 kilowatt systems. So per house, hmm. there is more solar. And then, you know, if your neighbor's got solar, guess what you're chatting about in the back, you know, in the backyard over the fence? Oh, who did you go with? How much did it cost? Is it worth it? Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm going to do it too. So as we see like, um, say streets and, and solar being concentrated in particular geographical areas, mm -hmm. that's even more challenging because <laughs> instead of power going one way into people's homes, which has been, you know, an assumption that we haven't questioned for years and years and years as power system engineers, mm. we're starting to question that. And what that means is typically in the middle of the day when we have beautiful, beautiful sunny days here in Australia, that there's so much solar and our houses, you know, our load, typically let's ignore COVID times. We're not in the house in the middle of the day, so we're not actually using that power, and there's excess, and that excess goes onto the grid. Now, the transformer, which sits at the end of your, maybe not at the end of your street, but sort of your local area, mm. again, was made for a one-way flow. And so what we, what the distribution network service provider companies are having to consider is do we upgrade those transformers to handle a two-way flow that then's going to, you know, eventually end up, on AMO's radar at a utility scale, utility scale just meaning large generation as opposed to just distribution. Mm. Or do we actually work with homeowners to consider could you shift your loads from, you know, if you're washing, doing your washing, could you do that in the middle of the day? Could you use your pool pump in the middle of the day? What else can you do that isn't really putting you out in terms of how you want to live your life, but that you could do in the middle of the day to use your solar? And the other piece is batteries. So more and more, you know, we can time batteries to charge. Um, typically batteries are inverted commas dumb. So they basically just start charging as soon as the first kind of watt of power comes out of that solar panel, mm -hmm. um, which is not a bad solution, but it, it potentially means that that battery is fully charged by kind of 11 a.m., 11.30. In, because what we're seeing is batteries are about a third of the size of a typical solar system. Mm -hmm. And so when we have that really high solar penetration in the middle of the day, we haven't really solved that problem yet. So that you can actually see when, you know, some of the circuits in your home, say like the, you know, the oven, the pool pump, your solar battery are doing, what are they doing? And it's in pretty much in real time updates every about five to 10 seconds. So you can literally go off and you know turn on and off switches. If you, if it's not specifically monitored, you can actually just go and turn off you know, that plug or your fridge or, you know, your vacuum cleaner, whatever it is and go, oh, you know, put two and two together. That's what's sucking up so much energy. Right. So, yeah, I guess for those two different ways of using energy, you know, the one way and the two way, is there some sort of analogy to better understand how, how the power is being generated and how it's getting to our homes for those yeah, two different sure. systems? So what I... What I try to use, and sometimes this flies and sometimes it doesn't, so let me know, you know, <laughs> how you go with these analogies, is the old school power system is kind of like a jet aeroplane. So it's it's big, it's stable, 
okay. carry a lot of weight. It's got a you know a lot of inertia mm-hmm. is what we like to the term we use quite often. And so really that's a reflection of the big power stations having a big physical heavy mass that's spinning around, keeping frequency at 50 hertz. And so if you think about, you know, the big stable jet airplane compared to a fighter jet, and so you've got a lot more controls, you can do a lot more cool stuff, but it's, you know, it, you can't, it's, it's not as stable. And so you need to be kind of more on the ball, you need to have more telemetry back to the, you know, back to the operator. And that's really what we're kind of seeing in the power, in the power system. So whilst we've got less and less jet airplanes, less and less big coal and gas power stations. We've got more and more jet pilots and more and more devices controlled by, you know, inverters. So Mm -hmm. whether they're big wind farms or solar farms and then distributed energy resources as well. And it really is, is making things more challenging, but equally more, more fun. And there are opportunities to capitalize on that. Right. Yeah. I guess Hmm. there's probably maybe one other analogy because the other thing I mentioned that, you know, inertia and that big physical mass spinning around a, mm. a shaft at a power station. And so, yeah, back, back years ago, frequency was, was pretty good at staying at 50 hertz. Over the last few years, it's, it's danced around a lot more. And so to try and paint the picture there, picture a big heavy truck going down a hill. Mm-hmm. It gets to the bottom of the hill and the driver hasn't put any more, you know, his foot on the pedal anymore, but that, that truck's still going to keep going for a while because it's got so much inertia. Mm-hmm. If you then think about a cyclist or or a motorbike, they're also going down the hill, but because they haven't got as much weight behind them, as much inertia, mm. they sort of run out quicker and they get more unstable unless you put your foot on the pedal or start cycling again. They kind of get more wobbly. Right. And that's kind of what we're seeing in the power system as well. So it's getting more wobbly. Right. Lately, in the last couple of years, AMO has actually introduced some things to correct that again, mm-hmm. but it's going to be an evolving feat of engineering to right. you know as we increase penetrations of renewables hmm. to continually develop the tool set and and increase or just encourage the amount of innovative ideas to try and help solve um, some of these challenges yeah because i guess as more and more designers and and more of the public want to have carbon carbon neutral homes they're wanting to electrify their homes more and more, so rely less on gas and fossil fuels. As the system, I guess, gets a bit more wobbly and where the grid might be becoming out of, a bit out of date with its one-way system, you mentioned batteries are you know, a good idea and I guess there's the smaller domestic batteries that we're seeing on the market. How do the much larger batteries that we've sort of seen happening in in South Australia how, how is that going to affect the system is that is that sort of a a, a band-aid or is that sort of just part of how we're going to have to upgrade the grid across the board to to deal with the the shortfall in the system at the moment Jeez, you know how to answer a good ask a good question <laughs> um all right <laughs> so look but the big batteries are a bit of both um mm. they are sort of a bit of a band-aid to just whilst we transition you know, the other parts of the power system and we, we say goodbye to more and more coal-fired power stations, we do need assets to help balance frequency, supply and demand. And so those big batteries are really there to do very almost micro movements, like responding in over short periods of time. They're not there for long energy storage. That's more so hydro, like mm-hmm. Snowy Hydro 2.0 is, is that capacity storage and being Mm -hmm. able to pump it up and down the hill 
allows us to have oh. duration of capacity, whereas the batteries are more so to deal with deviations in frequency and help in real time, like, you know, in sort of real time manage supply and demand. Okay. I don't know if so that- yeah, no, that's that's cool. <laughs> For the yeah, the Snowy two point I've not heard more about that system. What's what's the plan there? How is that going to to help us in the future? So it's going to provide more capacity. So when I say capacity in Australia, or I should say in the NEM, the National Electricity Market, which is the eastern side of Amos uh, remit, mm-hmm. so that's Queensland down to Tassie, South Australia, demand on any given day ranges from about 15 to 32 gigawatts. Mm-hmm. And and actually at the moment, no, I should say 12 and a half. The other day we reached another new record and renewables, I think, provided the grid. I think it was 58% for, oh, wow. for a period of time. Yeah. The reference I'm trying to remember, I think, was two hours. So it was significant. Mm. So demand can be anywhere between 12 and a half gigawatts to about 32 gigawatts. Mm. And the 32 gigawatts is really a reflection of like, you know, it's a hot, cloudy day or say it's been a hot day, but then, you know, a big storm comes in. So all the solar drops off. Typically what we see is wind drops off. It gets quite still mm. when it, like a big storm comes. And then all of a sudden we've gone from quite low demand and it <laughs> spikes right up and we still have to cater for that. Hydro is extremely useful for, in those situations. Mm-hmm. can turn on very, very quickly. and typically if they've sort of operated their scheme well, can then maintain that capacity over a period of hours to then wait for other gas generators, which are a bit slower to turn on mm-hmm. for other coal fired generators, which typically are from cold, like, you know, they've been off out of service for you know, a few days can take 24 to 48 hours to get to full capacity. Mm-hmm. So you do need a variety of services to manage situations in the power system so you've got kind of like big big scale batteries that can do short deviations and, and very short duration capacities hydro which can do longer capacity and turn on quite quickly within you know kind of like a, a matter of seconds or minutes depending on the scheme depending on the age of technology depending on you know da 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 like a whole number of factors and then gas is a you know a bit slower but can last even longer and you sort of go down the track so i think one of your part of that question was What's the longer term solution? I think the longer term, what we're going to see is a mix, is, mm-hmm. and and we will need to have a mix for a long time. Mm. Yeah. So as solar and and wind gets even, you know, those high those penetrations get even higher. This might be a bit controversial, but you know, we we call it spilling energy, or it's actually generating so much that, like I spoke about before, there's so much power in the system that the prices say negative a thousand to then mm. incentivize generators to turn off. We might have so much wind and solar that we're needing to spill energy. But overall, if you just take a step back, hmm. overall, it means that we, we refer to the whole renewable energy industry as myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> great. Uh, the, you know, the renewable energy industry collectively can actually manage instead of those, you know, I referred to 58% providing our total NEM demand for a period of minutes or hours, I think. That, that stretches out longer and longer and longer because we've just got so much in the system mm-hmm. that can then, as the clouds come over here in another region, the clouds aren't there and, they, and it sort of evens out eventually, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So I really think it's going to be 
hopefully a strong mix of technologies mm-hmm. and perhaps in, in some way if you look at it almost too much solar and wind because we just have to allow and account for so many variations and and, and just random things happening you know big storms big loads tripping off you know mm. and are the are the are the houses that are mainly affected by those issues the uh, you know, standalone houses that don't have a battery, are they the ones that are sort of probably contributing the most to those issues? Yeah, that's a really good um, insight there. So that's right. Without batteries, and let's again pretend that we're we're not in COVID and everyone's actually gone to work and everyone's actually gone to school and life's somewhat normal, there's not much happening in the middle of the day probably in your home, particularly if you haven't got, you know, a whole bunch of smart devices. I know that I do this every day and I don't have any smart devices in my home, which might seem insane. But yeah, so that's sort of, you know, batteries do have a big opportunity to help manage that. But also for the homeowner that's then invested in batteries to help manage their consumption and to better utilize the solar that they have, you know, gone out and and purchased. And so not only can it then help the power system because you're consuming more and you're sending less to the grid. So that transformer maybe doesn't need to be upgraded. And as society, you know, we, we all kind of end up paying for that. So that's kind of a saving, a community saving, which is great. But then also what's coming up, and this is then my area of, of expertise over the last 18 months to two years is virtual power plants. Mm-hmm. And so a, a sort of broad definition of a virtual power plant is a collection of controllable loads, aka let's just stick with batteries for now, mm-hmm. collection of batteries amongst many people's homes that, that that then gets collected or aggregated into you know, a cloud platform. So for example, Clips of Solar's cloud. And then we apply some smarts to it for then to operate like a normal power system. So it's providing services mm. to the power system and by extension, the community. Right. So it's sort of like a bigger or it's, yeah, it's like a mini grid, but made of the batteries in people's homes. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, as it grows, it can then sum to an amount that is similar to the big, you know, single utility batteries, say 30 megawatts. And as it scales bigger and bigger, there's no, there's actually really no cap on it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, a a virtual power plant can be as, as big as the consumers willing (laughs) are, um, you know, mums and dads and people like yourselves, you know, you and I are willing to come on board. And so, yes, it has benefits to the power system and then by extension society because we're needing to do less upgrades and build less big power stations. But if you focus on the homeowner, you know, remember they've spent a lot of money on their Mm -hmm. solar and battery, typically thousands of dollars. And so it's great for them because they can actually earn some extra revenue. So rather than just, you know, waiting for that payback period to come, they can actually start earning revenue on the, you know, in the market mm. via via a platform. And Clips of Solar will eventually, that's kind of why I've been brought on board, is to then build out Clips of Solar's virtual power plant. So it's, right. it's pretty cool. It's pretty complicated. There's <laughs> a bit of a, you know, roadmap to go, but everyone's really excited about it because it really, I see it, I really believe this. It's a, it's a win-win. It's a win-win mm. win for the household because you're making better use of your assets and earning, you know, able to earn some money. Mm-hmm. And then it's a win for the power system and community at large because the assets that are already there are being better utilized and we don't need to then build so many big big infrastructure, big power lines, big mm. power stations. 
And what's the sort of entry entry level number of houses that you would need to create a virtual grid to to I guess yeah see see the best benefit like what what how many houses would that would that sort of entail? Yeah, good question. So look, it it can it can be as small you know as just a couple of houses aggregated together, but in terms of actually being able to monetize that mm-hmm. here in Australia and AMO. They deal with megawatts. So um, the National Electricity Market Dispatch Engine, NEMD, is a massive linear program that crunches a whole bunch of numbers and then dispatches on that five-minute period that I spoke about earlier. Supply and demand is balanced on a five-minute basis, all comes Mm. back together, and it works on megawatts. So really, it, it needs to be a collection of at least, I'm saying at least, probably a megawatt and a half. Um, mm-hmm. in a particular state. So also NEMD works jur- by jurisdiction, by state. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you need a bit of headroom, what we find is that, you know, Wi-Fi sucks every now and again and um, all people's batteries are fully charged or fully discharged. And so about mm-hmm. 10 to 20% of the fleet is what mm-hmm. we kind of call that aggregation of di- distributed energy resources isn't available. And so you need some headroom. So that all boils down to depending, and look, it's, there's so many ifs and buts, but you know, av- say if you say average battery size, 10 kilowatts, that's not necessarily true, but say 10 kilowatts and you take into account the headroom and bits and pieces, it's around probably four to 500 homes per state that you really need as mm-hmm. a minimum to, to make it worth it. But as things scale, it gets better it gets better for kind of everyone and you can, those little, um, you know, things that cause the various houses to come offline, that there's sort of a smoothing effect, the more and more houses, um, you get. Mm. But it's, yeah, it's really interesting that you, that you also mentioned before the, um, you know, turning off the smart devices and the things that we don't actually use when we're not in the, in the home is, do you think it's, or yeah, I guess what, what do you think is the, the best way to move forward? Is it to, to get any house out there and to put solar panels on it and batteries or to, I guess, design houses that are far more efficient first and then, and then also put solar and, and batteries on them? Oh, I love this question. So for someone that, you know, lives and breathes solar and batteries every day, I come back to my university studies and energy efficiency is something that, you know, isn't particularly sexy, but is so effective. So, you know, in my home, I've, I've actually put more effort. This is a really good question. I've put more effort into making my personal apartment more energy efficient than considering how I can do community solar and batteries, you know, in my apartment block, which is might come down later in the, in the track. So, yeah, I know that in the U.S. it's currently estimated that about 20 to 30% of all energy could be saved fire more efficient buildings, which for me is a crazy, (laughs) you know, figure that I really think we should be taking advantage of. And there's, you know, there's a range of things you can do, certainly, you know, insulating your windows and whatnot, but, you know, I'd be really encouraging the listeners to have a think about, you know, the flooring and the ceilings um, and then insulation of the walls then even just ceiling. So Mm. I seriously spent about 10 bucks at Bunnings and just got, like uh, ceiling gaps and things. Ceiling gaps, yeah, yeah, in my windows and my doors. That honestly is is one of the biggest savers that you know everyone not everyone overlooks, but it, you know doesn't necessarily come up because it's not particularly sexy, but it costs mm. nothing and it's very effective. 
So once you've really capitalized on all the sort of energy efficient type things that you can do, and sorry, also thinking about um, plants, you know, like deciduous trees, amazing. If you plant, you know, deciduous tree, particularly on a west facing or north facing window, then it'll provide some great shade and cooling effects in summer, drops all its leaves, lets in the light in winter, bogs your uncle, you've got a, you know, a magical natural heater. Hmm. So, you know, there's some pretty sort of simple, low cost solutions out there that are very effective. But, you know, by the time that that's, let's say that that's been exhausted, then certainly solar and batteries with the combination of a home energy management system to then kind of go a little step further to think about how you can optimize your home's energy further for further savings and then potentially earnings as you, as you sign up to a virtual power plant. Yeah. Awesome. Hmm. Well, that's, yeah, that's amazing. 20 to 30% of all energy could be saved in the States. Yeah, I think I had to like, (laughs) I had to ask again. I was like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Tell me that. (laughs) Yeah, that's incredible. So yeah, we would, we potentially would have to be doing less with solar, I guess, or renewables on a, on a personal level if our houses just operated more efficiently. Yeah. Which is a really great thing to think about. Mm. Um, And yeah, I guess my, my last question is about the, the health, the health of the grid. Because you're sort of saying, you know, it's at the moment it's a bit outdated. We're still sort of figuring it out. If we're putting a little bit of pressure on the on the grid by putting more solar on our roofs and things like that, is it still a good idea to to put the solar out there and to you know to keep keep um, you know adding to that pressure a little bit, or um, is this something where we should sort of be waiting for government to do something instead? This is probably your trickiest question yet. So I think there is a bit of a balance to strike there, solar and batteries certainly, and then a bit of smarts behind it. I think let's go full tilt there because, you know, the the household can capitalise on that more so. The, The issue with having so much solar without it being supported by anything is it's actually potentially going to push up costs for mm. us all mm. because if that transformer needs to be upgraded guess what it's not the houses with solar that are paying for it it's everyone in that local community and by mm. extension that's not actually technically how the network service providers work and there's a big fat regulatory system behind it but basically it ends up in our taxes mm. and in our in our collective retail tariffs so i think there is a bit of a balance to strike there and to consider that perhaps a a bit more carefully than just putting solar everywhere. Yeah, I think we need to lev- move to a next level of um, of sophistication. When I was talking about there being so much solar and wind, perhaps I'll just take the opportunity to clarify myself. That's probably more so on a, on a utility scale rather than a just distributed energy scale because, mm-hmm. you know, the big power lines that we've got, and I would really like to see more so when coal-fired generators are closed down, that that same piece of land and the same poles and wires typically are, you know, still in good nick, but that's then utilised for whatever it is, mm-hmm. the next renewable generator to come along. And so collectively at that sort of higher utility scale AMO type level, the balance of supply and demand can be evened out by by sort of excess solar and wind. It just gets really tricky when we – do you remember I said in the beginning of the podcast that frequency was a global property? Mm-hmm. And so it's between, you know, Queensland down to Tassie and 
sort of everyone in between feels the same frequency. Voltage is not, it's, it's localized. And because mm-hmm. of that localized nature of voltage, that's almost this issue in a nutshell, that if you have so much solar on a particular feeder like in a particular street, that then pushes up the voltage that then impacts the transformer and uh, sort of like cascades from there. So if you can manage that on a localized level, aka by smart home energy management and or by batteries, that can be really beneficial and, and save everyone involved, you know, money. Okay. So it's a overall it's a still gonna be a balancing act, but it's not going to do more harm than good to put solar on our roofs for now. You know, and we've, I guess we've still got the old, you know, fossil fuel power plants taking care of uh, any of those issues as much as we want to get rid of them. So it's, um, it's still, it's still able to operate, and we're not going to break the system or anything by putting solar on on heaps more roofs. Uh, again, I think there is a balance there. I mean, if we look at the extreme of South Australia, they they have mm-hmm. so much solar and in concentrated areas that that AMO has actually needed to introduce kind of like a backstop mechanism that in extreme scenarios they actually do need to cut off mm-hmm. okay. solar from households because it actually is causing more harm than good. So, I, yeah, I think there is a, a balance that needs to be struck there and it's not as simple as solar equals good. I think we're, we really, in Australia, so in some ways are really fortunate because we're pushing that envelope mm-hmm. and as much as our media doesn't really portray this, we, we really are at the forefront of integrating you know, renewables and, and then the challenges that come along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, we are, you know, needing to just think of a little bit more about how to balance that. And, and so solar everywhere in a specific geographical area, I'm not sure is, um, is the answer. Solar, okay. That's solar only, I should say. Right. Okay. So for all the architects and designers out there who are designing renewable homes, still a good idea to put solar panels on their roofs, but need a bit of pressure onto some particular people, maybe higher up in, in government somewhere to start sorting out any of the deficiencies in the grid and um, the parts that are starting to, to reach, the, reach the end of their lifetime. Is that the sort of way forward, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Mm. I mean, you know, let's let's keep going solar because if it, I constantly am struck between being a greenie and an engineer. And so if we'd never pushed the envelope so much in terms of installing so much solar and having issues that we're, that we're at, mm-hmm. you know, we wouldn't even be having these kind of conversations. Mm. So I think, you know, by pushing that envelope, yes, it does get it on the table that we need to address it. And, you know, if we can do that at a better kind of policy level and, and kind of get those incentives right, then everyone wins. So yeah, I think, look, don't necessarily hold off on solar, but just be aware that it, it is part of a broader conversation. And when, mm. we, and when things come up about, you know, the cut in feed-in tariffs and the backstop mechanism and the emergency powers that need to be incorporated, it's because in localised areas it is potentially actually causing some really tricky power system sort of conundrums mm. and in order to save the system at times it's very rare but at times aim you know aim or the local network service provider will need to pull some levers to actually pull things back because the last thing i would go as far as to say anyone wants is is to blow up equipment it's mm. extremely expensive if we blow up that transformer mm. because we've got high voltages like that doesn't make sense for anyone mm. so mm. yeah just yeah. to be mindful of that that this is a moving beast and that mm. there are challenges and equally opportunities that will come along. 
Yeah. And I guess if we've got the super, super efficient houses that need less energy in the first place, then that's also going right. to help, help things out. <laughs> Absolutely it will. And, and remember the houses and then equally the appliances in said house. Mm, mm. All right, Jackie. Well, thank you so much for all of that uh, information and for sharing all the technical ins and outs of, of the grid that I think sometimes we uh, we don't really think about we just sort of flick a switch and expect there to be power there so thank you That's so when much we know for... we're do- doing our job well yeah no. and we don't have to You're think welcome. about it yeah <laughs> all right yeah. awesome well thank you so much for joining me and yeah all, all the best right. thank you very much for having me this has been hearing architecture proudly sponsored by brickworks thank you so much for listening and thanks again to our guest in this episode jackie mills thank you so much for being a part of the podcast it was great to hear your side of the industry we can't wait to see what clipsal does in the alternative energy space in the future our sponsor brickworks also produce podcasts by architecture fanatic and comedian tim ross if you'd like to hear from some more amazing architects you can find the art of living architects abroad and the power of two at brickworks.com.au or your favorite podcast platform the more support we get from you the more episodes we get to make if you'd like to show your support please rate review and subscribe to hearing architecture in your favorite podcast app If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Imagine production team was Hilary Duff, Kimberly Huey and Max Legal-White. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions, written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.